text this morning is 2 Timothy 3, the verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, imagine the situation. The year is 1510. You're a young person working on the estate of a large landholder. If you're a young man, your responsibilities are working in the field and caring for the animals. If you're a young woman, your work is in the house, cooking, cleaning, and doing general household chores. You're expected to work reasonably hard. It's about 12 hours a day, six days a week, with a few necessary chores on Sunday. But at least the landowner you work for is a kind man. There's always plenty of food. Occasionally you get a half day off on Saturdays. Life is simple, but good. Although when you think about things, it does seem somewhat empty. Are you a Christian? Well, that question has never really been put to you. Like everyone else around you, you're a member of the Roman Catholic Church. It's really the only church around. You believe in God, that he's the one who provides your daily blessings. You know about Jesus Christ, although he's just one more figure among the rest of the saints. When you attend the Mass, the priest speaks some words in Latin. In confessional, he's always telling you about how important it is for you to do good works. Your Bible knowledge is limited. You know some of the stories from what has been taught you as a child at Sunday school. But that's about it. In church, you don't understand the scripture readings because they're in a different language. Hardly anyone had a copy of the Bible. Master has one sitting up on a shelf. It's a family heirloom, but it doesn't get read. Not too long ago, Grandma died. At her funeral, the focus was on praying for her soul. Since that time, the whole family's been saving whatever they could out of their meager wages. The money was going for indulgences to pay for Grandma's way from purgatory to heaven. This is a not unrealistic portrait of life in time prior to the Reformation. Many of the working classes did not know how to read. The printing press had not yet been discovered. The Bible was not available in the common language of the people. The papacy was corrupt. People lived in bondage to a series of unscriptural traditions. 
They were governed by superstitions, by the rites and the ceremonies of the church. But the light of the gospel had not penetrated their lives. Along came Martin Luther. His famous 95 Theses sparked off a religious fire in Europe that the Roman Catholic Church was unable to extinguish. Other reformers like John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and John Knox joined Luther in a battle to free the church from its abuses and excesses. The theological conflict which followed has often been characterized by focusing on the so-called four solas, the four alones of the Reformation. The Reformers held that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, by faith alone, and through the Scriptures alone. This morning we're going to focus on the teaching of Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura is the teaching that there's only one special revelation from God that man possesses today, the written scriptures, what we commonly call the Bible. It's a teaching that the scriptures are inspired by God, that they contain all we need for our salvation. It's the belief that the scriptures are the ultimate authority for the church. The question that each new generation faces is this. Do we accept the Bible as the word of God? As the sole authority in all matters of faith and practice? Is the whole of my thinking governed by scripture? Or do I pick and choose out of scripture what suits me? Putting myself and modern knowledge forward as the ultimate standard and authority? Do I accept Scripture as revelation from God? Or do I trust human understanding and use that as a rule for my life? I preach you the Word of God under the following theme. The Bible alone is the only rule for faith and practice. We'll consider the origin of the Bible, the usefulness of the Bible, and the purpose of the Bible. In the verses leading up to our text, Paul encourages Timothy to continue in what he has learned and believed. Paul points out how from childhood, Timothy was acquainted with the sacred writings. From 2 Timothy 1, we know that Timothy's grandmother Lois and her mother Eunice were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had brought Timothy up in the faith. That faith was based on the sacred writings, which is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Paul writes that these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. His point is that the Holy Spirit works faith in our hearts through the Word of God. The Word of God has great power. It's the means God uses to transform people from living in darkness to sharing in the light and life Christ brings. How is it possible that a book has such great power? 
Why is it that the reading and preaching of the gospel can not only change individual lives, but even transform entire cultures? Paul explains that in our text. He writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. I want you to think about that image for a moment, beloved. You know what happens when you try to speak with your hand in front of your mouth? You feel these little puffs of air against your hand. When Paul writes that scripture is breathed out by God, he wants us to know that in every passage of the Bible we have God speaking. Every word is produced by the very breath of God. Often we refer to this teaching of Scripture being God-breathed as the doctrine of inspiration. We believe that God used human agents, the prophets and apostles, to communicate his words to his people. They were unique people with their own characters, education, background, and gifts. God used each of them to have his words written down, that people in later generations would know God's self-revelation. This process of writing his words was guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for the Spirit is variously translated as breath or wind or spirit. When we say that scripture is God-breathed, we're confessing its origin is from God. God took care to make sure that his words were recorded in the scriptures. Thus, we confess the scriptures to be the infallible word of God. It's reliable. We can trust that what we have is God's revelation of himself and of his mighty deeds to us. Now, some people say that there are mistakes in the Bible. It's true that there are some minor errors in the transmission of the text. We need to understand that since ancient times, the Bible was hand-copied from one generation to the next. Despite the huge scope for copying mistakes... When you compare the earliest texts of the Bible with manuscripts from more than a thousand years later, they're more than 99% the same. And the differences do not affect the clear teachings of Scripture. God blessed those copying His Word. In His providential care, He ensured that we have an accurate copy of what He communicated to His people two or three thousand years ago. Please consider what it means, beloved, that Scripture is breathed out by God. Think about what happens when God speaks. God's almighty. He's all-powerful. When he speaks, things happen. In the creation of the world, God spoke, and the universe came into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Similarly, on the following days of creation, the Lord spoke and brought into being the sun and moon, vegetation, 
fish and birds and land creatures and man. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood fast. Genesis 2 describes how God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. In Ezekiel 37, the Lord showed his prophet a valley of dry bones. At the command of the Lord, Ezekiel prophesied, and the bones came together with sinews and flesh and skin. Then the Lord said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. Ezekiel did. And in his vision, these dead people were revived. It was a prophecy not just about how God would restore his people from exile in Babylon, but also of how he would send his spirit to give new life to his people. You see, beloved, by nature we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We of ourselves do not have power to turn to God, to repent and believe. The unregenerate man is dead. He has no more power to effect a change of heart than a skeleton has the ability to come to life again. In John 3, Jesus explained to Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was here speaking about regeneration, about being born from above, about being given new life spiritually. Regeneration is the act of God alone by which he renews the human heart, making it alive when it was dead. This work of the Holy Spirit in us does not depend on us in any way. There's no preparation that we can make for him to work in us. There's no contribution from our side to the new life God gives us. As it says in the Canons of Door, chapter 3, 4, article 12, regeneration is something which God works in us without us. Just as the Spirit of God breathed life into those dead bodies in Ezekiel's vision, so it's only the Holy Spirit who can bring us to life again. God's work of regeneration, of causing us to be born again, is a supernatural, most powerful, and at the same time most delightful, marvelous, mysterious, and inexpressible work. We don't fully understand how God works this in us. But we do know that it's through the Spirit and the Spirit alone that we're made alive. He enlightens our minds so we can understand the gospel. He creates in us a new heart, transforms our spirit. He makes that which was dead alive, which was bad good, which was unwilling willing, which was stubborn, obedient. It's through his work alone that we may share in Christ and all his benefits. 
The Spirit uses means to bring life to the dead. The Spirit works through the Word of God. It's an amazing process. One we don't fully understand. The Lord speaks about this in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. He says that just as rain waters the earth and provides bread to the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. In John 5, 25, the Lord Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The Spirit gives understanding to those who hear the preaching of the gospel, to those who read and meditate on the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul speaks about how he planted and Apollos watered, but how it was God who gave the growth. In Romans 10, 17, Paul explains that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Thus, we see that the Bible comes from God. It records his spoken word. God's word is very powerful. As Paul said to Timothy in the verses leading up to our text, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible has a transforming effect on the lives of many individuals. It causes dead people to be revived, to share in the life there is in Jesus Christ. The Bible is not just some letters printed on the pages of a book. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. This brings us to our second point, and it will consider the usefulness of the Bible we're examining the doctrine of sola scriptura, that we are to live by the scriptures alone. Our reading from Deuteronomy 4 makes this clear. It's noteworthy to see how Moses refers to the words of God. In verse 1, he speaks about the statutes and rules he was teaching them to observe. In verse 2, he refers to the commandments of the Lord. In verse 8, these statutes and rules are called the Torah, the law of God. In verse 13, the law is referred to as the covenant, the Ten Commandments. What quickly becomes clear is that God governs his people explicitly or directly by his word. Moses makes it clear that if Israel wanted to live in covenant fellowship with the Lord, they needed to obey his commands. If they wanted to live under God's blessings in the land of Canaan, they were going into possess. They needed to be subject to God's commands. The same applies to us, beloved. The Bible not only teaches us the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, it also provides a blueprint 
for how we are to live thankful lives in God's service. From Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, we learn that God governs his people exclusively by his word. Moses commanded, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. This is where the Roman church went wrong in the Middle Ages. Rome believed that the Bible was complemented by the living tradition of the church, which was viewed as a further channel of revelation. Rome formalized this teaching when it stated that the Pope could speak the infallible word of God. And thus the Roman church added various doctrines to Scripture. Some examples are purgatory, the sinless nature of Mary, the mother of our Lord, praying to the saints, the need for prayers for the dead, the belief that you're saved by participating in the sacraments, the idea that we need to add our good works to faith in order to be saved, and the fact that God mediates his grace through the priest. Today we see that charismatics also add to the Bible as well. They think that God gives new revelations today by which we are to govern our lives. The bottom line is, in their viewpoint, the Bible is not complete. It's not sufficient for salvation and life. We, beloved, strongly disagree with this perspective. In the Belgian Confession, Article 7, we confess the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. We believe that the Bible fully contains the will of God, and that all that man must believe is sufficiently taught therein. It's unlawful for anyone, even for an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in Holy Scripture. Yes, even if it be an angel from heaven, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 8. Our confession stresses we're not to consider the writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with the divine scriptures. Even if something is an established custom, or supported by a great number of people, or from ancient times, or has been declared by church councils, it's not of equal value with the truth of God's holy word. Our text stresses the value, the usefulness of God's inspired word. Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Please note the main point that Paul is making. The Bible is profitable. It's beneficial. It's useful. Hearing the preaching of the gospel and reading, studying, and meditating on God's word pays rich dividends. Paul outlines the ways in which the Bible is useful for us. The Bible is profitable for teaching. We need to be instructed in the truths of God's word. 
Doctrine is the basis for life. We cannot act on what we do not know. We cannot practice what we have not first been taught. We cannot behave in accordance with something we don't believe. If the Bible alone is the only rule for faith and practice, then we need to know what it says. Beloved, do you know your Bible? I'm not asking if you could win a trivia contest. But does the Bible give you a wholesome perspective on life? Do you know who you are in Christ? And how you are to live thankful lives in response to His grace? The Bible is profitable for reproof and correction. To reprove someone means to rebuke him or her. You only reprove people when they've done something wrong. What Paul is saying is that God's word is useful for exposing our sins. It not only points out God's commands, it also shows how we so often break his commands. In different ways, the Bible addresses our sins. Why does God speak to us in this way? In order to convict us of our sins. His goal is to work repentance in us so we seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So be glad when the Word of God addresses you in painful areas of your life. Listen up when a brother or sister comes alongside you out of concern for your well-being, admonishes you for sin in your life. Through His Word, God corrects us. So we turn away from our sins. So we live in wholesome fellowship with him. The Bible is profitable for training in righteousness. When you hear that word training, what image does it bring to mind? Doesn't it make you think of sports, of athletes training themselves so they can excel? An athlete doesn't just wake up one morning and discover he or she is an Olympic champion. Away from the crowds, often early in the morning, an athlete puts himself through his paces, pushing his body to the limits so he can get better. Think of the discipline that takes. Think of the sacrifices such a person makes. Think of all the hard work. You need to train hard to succeed. Is it any different in the Christian life? In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable To be a good athlete, you need to learn self-control. Same applies in the Christian life. We need to learn to apply God's word to our daily lives. We need to fight against the sinful desires of the flesh. We need to train ourselves to live according to all God's commands. That's what training in righteousness is. It's not a walk in the park, beloved. 
It's difficult for us to live sanctified lives. In Christ, God has redeemed us. He has made us his holy people. But living in holiness requires us to turn away from the temptations of this world, to say no to our sinful desires. To do that, we need to live in close fellowship with God, reading and studying his word, holding on to his promises, trusting his faithfulness, wrestling with God in prayer. Are you engaged in this struggle? Are you fighting the good fight of the faith? By God's grace and through the working of his abiding spirit, are you, um, are you submitting your life to what God teaches in his word? This brings us to our final point. And I will consider the purpose of the Bible after teaching that the Bible is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, Paul points out the goal of this training. It's that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, beloved, God uses the Bible to transform our lives. He uses it to change us from the inside out. He enables or equips us for good works. He does this so we can live holy lives to his glory. We know, beloved, that by nature we're inclined to sin and evil. When we look around us in society, there's a lot of people who blindly live in their sins. They do whatever they want. Whatever gives them pleasure or satisfaction in life. Many no longer have much of a moral code. Perhaps they still know that lying and cheating and stealing are wrong. But if they want something bad enough and think they can get away with it, they'll still lie and cheat and steal. The reason is they don't know God. They have no interest in serving Him. As Christians, we're different I'm not saying that we live perfect lives. Every day we're confronted with the temptations of the world and with the sinful desires of our flesh. Sin often clings to us as well. But God does a wondrous work in our lives. God teaches us the difference between right and wrong. By the powerful working of his spirit in us, he helps us to live God-pleasing lives. We get to experience what it means to live in fellowship with God. Knowing our sins are forgiven. That we have peace with God in Jesus Christ. By his word and spirit, God transforms us. So that out of thankfulness... We live for him. And beloved, God doesn't just work in us as individual believers. At times in history, God has used the Bible to transform whole cultures and societies. 
Think about the depravity and the decadence of Roman society in the first centuries. Yet God used the gospel to completely change the then-known world. Under Constantine, Christianity became the world religion. Many of the freedoms enshrined in our Constitution are a result of a Christian morality and perspective on life. In the introduction to this sermon, I gave you a picture of life in the time of the Middle Ages. People lived in darkness. They didn't know God or his word. Many lived in fear because of their superstitions, because of the faulty teachings of the Roman church. But that all changed with the Reformation. Do you know what caused such a radical change in people's lives? It was not just that the Reformers challenged the church's teachings. The Reformers gave people copies of the Bible in their own languages. Luther translated the whole confinement in the Wartburg Castle in 1522. William Tyndale translated the New Testament into English. Further translations followed. This was the Reformers' greatest legacy, granting common people access to the Bible in languages, languages they could understand. The Word of God is powerful. It transforms people's lives. It changes whole cultures. Today, God is especially at work in Africa and in Asia, granting light and life to many there. So, beloved, hold on to the Bible as the Word of God. Treasure it. Not as an heirloom on your shelf, but as a guidebook for your life. It's through the Bible that we learn about the gospel, of God's grace in granting us forgiveness and life through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel, and the gospel alone that's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power to transform our lives, so we live them to God's glory. We need the Bible to be central in our lives. Come to church. Tune in to the preaching. Allow God to work in your heart and life so that you are transformed. Read from the Bible each day. Study it. Meditate on it. It's through his word that God equips us to live holy lives to the praise of his glory. Amen.